This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. This episode features yet another presenter from last year's conference. Do you have something interesting to present at this year's conference? Did you run any trials or solve any problems at your brewery this year? I bet you did. Good news? The deadline to submit your abstracts for the 2021 Master Brewers Conference has been extended. Check the show notes for the link. You're balancing off calories, you're balancing off flavor, and you're balancing off mouthfeel. And all of those, those three circles kind of come together and create in the center is what we would call taste. A little bit of sweetness goes a long way. This week on the show, we talk carbs and sweetening with a guy who knows more about sugar than Buddy the Elf. Dextrose, cane sugar, beet sugar, corn syrups, stevia, and back sweetening. You name it. Whether you're brewing seltzer or beers with adjuncts, there's something here for everyone. I am Scott Helstad, Technical Services Advisor for Cargill Starches, Sweeteners, and Texturizers Business Unit. I cover our national account, and I'm currently working out of my home based in Winona, Minnesota. I guess I should say welcome back because you were actually one of the very first uh, people that we recorded a podcast with way back on, I think it was episode 11, which uh, doesn't even exist anymore because a lot of the early episodes, uh, we had no idea what we were doing and the audio quality was so bad. Uh, so it's 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 in the archive somewhere, but uh, Mark Sammartino and I sat down with you um, during the 2016 World Brewing Congress um, to we recorded several interviews there to to launch this podcast. So it's it's been a while since we've done this with you. So thanks for being um, coming back after a um, couple hundred episode hiatus here. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking about it today, John, and was like, oh yeah, I remember. Him. What did we talk about back then? And so I, I recall, I think we were discussing about trailos. It was it was trailos. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, some of the opportunities that it might have for uh, uh, an ingredient in in brewing to enhance some things. So yeah, I had to to think back to that one. All right. 
Well, we're going to come at this primarily with a focus on seltzer because that's kind of the hot topic. Uh, Although I do have a few beer questions for you too in the mix. Um, But I just want to make the point here that even if folks listening aren't making hard seltzer, there's plenty of knowledge here that can be applied to beer and other fermentations. There's, there's a lot of stuff that's relevant across the board, right? Absolutely. Yeah, this is um, really my focus is on, you know, what are the correct carbohydrates that people should be looking at to create products, whether it's how do you get energy into yeast or alcohol production, uh, or how do you have residual carbohydrates that are left over to give a little bit of body and character. Uh, to the finished goods. It's also there to try to understand, since I focus primarily on glucose syrups or corn syrups, as we call here in North America, uh, the the fact that a lot of other ingredients that are out there that people are working with are sources of carbohydrates. So it could be starch from rice, it could be starch from wheat, or it could be uh, carbohydrates and sugars that you're getting from different fruit juices and so forth that are being used as flavor compounds. So I've tried to really encompass and bring all of that together in my understanding of what is the levers that can be pulled uh, by beverage developers and especially in the hard seltzer market since they're really trying a lot of different things. Scott, talk about the various raw material options for seltzer production. The, The raw material selections I would break down into a couple of different categories. One is, what does the yeast like and what will they use efficiently? The other is really around what does the consumer want to see on the label? And so you get marketing uh, trying to pick something that's going to appeal to the consumer versus what's the yeast really going to work with and, and have some fun with. So as you look across uh, the different materials that are available, sugar is one that works very well with yeast. Uh, they ferment it very easily and so forth. It also has great appeal to consumers because they look at it and say sugar. So whether it comes from cane or beet, they, they understand it. It's table sugar that you get on, you put on your, into your coffee or your tea or right. your cereal in the morning. So yeah, everybody's pretty well familiar with that. Um, liquid sugar is the form that it, it's really handled by large beverage customers and so forth because it's a product that's really easy to pump. And the solids for that is usually around 66 and a half, uh, 67 bricks, which is a bricks reading. Uh, invert sugar is, as I would describe it, is essentially taking sucrose and basically reacting it with an acid to convert it into its two base sugars of glucose and fructose. If one's going to look at what's out in the marketplace, high fructose corn syrup was actually developed to replicate invert sugar. And make it easy for the uh, for the bottling industry. Why is that important? And if I can take a little diversion here, because when you put sucrose into acidic beverages, it will naturally invert. So that uh, if you were to analyze an all sugar carbonated soft drink, the odds are that you would come up with zero sucrose, but you would have a fifty fifty mixture of fructose and and dextrose in it which is what high fructose corn syrups were designed to replace because they were much purer and a lot easier to handle. Um, Dextrose monohydrate is a dry version of dextrose. Uh, We call it refined liquid dextrose. It's also referred to as uh, corn sugar. 
Uh, dextrose monohydrates, 100% fermentable. Uh, the yeast are going to take it. They really like it. Uh, a lot of brewers worry about it because of the the fact that yeast does like it so much. Uh, it, it ferments it very, very quickly. Uh, usually the yeast kind of exhausts itself on it. And so whether you're going to be repitching the yeast or not afterwards really becomes a big dilemma with that. But it's very, very efficient and everything along that way. There are dextrose syrups that are also available, a 95 or a 99 product. Essentially, they're the same there. Again, it's a liquid. Uh, the large brewers really prefer it because, again, as a liquid, they're able to put it in a bulk storage tank and basically push a button and pump it into their systems and handle it that way. You don't have 50-pound bags to deal with in the case of dry products and so forth. Another ingredient that I throw up there uh, and add in for people to consider are the high fructose corn syrups. Now, before everybody looks at me and, and starts to wonder what the heck are you saying, Scott, just bear in mind, number one, the yeast doesn't care. Yeast is just fermenting carbohydrates, and then they're going to look and say, okay, I've got fructose and dextrose that are present there. Same sugars that I find in, in sucrose when I ferment that. High fructose corn syrups are very efficient. They're very easy to handle. Uh, they've been around for a very long time. The dilemma that high fructose syrups run into is the fact that consumers have been so put off by them that it, it just is not a play for the marketers. Why is that? Why, why, are, the consu- why are consumers so, so anti-high fructose corn syrups? Well, it, it gets back to the whole obesity issue that uh, started back in the early 2000s. And you know, from that side, you know, a, a scientist, and I can't remember the names, basically postulated that if you look at the growth of high fructose corn syrup, it seems to parallel uh, and follow the growth of obesity in the United States. And so they speculated, and everybody agrees that it was speculation that it was high fructose that was caused. Unfortunately, if you, in my opinion, if you look at the data and so forth, the consumption of sugar in the grand scheme of things really did not change uh, that much on a person-to-person basis. That, that daily intake value wasn't really adjusted much. But it, it, the graph just looks bad. And yeah, so, and, and it doesn't help, I assume, that the that corn syrup has been vilified in Super Bowl ads and, and things like that either. So uh, That's a different topic for discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, now might be a, a good time to talk about the difference between bricks and Play-Doh or specific gravity. Yeah, so the um, it, it gets interesting because uh, the brick scale is a scale that was developed for measuring this percent solids of sucrose, and it really focuses on a pure sugar solution. Uh, the, it, it, in the case of brewers and brewer's wort, they're measuring Plato, obviously developed by the scientist Plato, uh, and it takes into account dissolved solids and some other things that are present there. What BRICS is measuring is a refractive index uh, because sugars will bend light. And so when you use a refractometer, you, can, you get this scale that's on there. All sugars will bend light. So uh, Brewer's Wort will give you a bricks reading in addition to a Play-Doh reading. Corn syrups will also give bricks readings, so forth. But they're not exactly the same as what a bricks reading is for sugar. 
And I caution people on that because the in the industry and the food industry in general, beverages and so forth, small handheld refractometers, brick scales are very much available. They're very economical, easy to use, and they give you readings that that seem to be right. But they are off just by a little bit, depending on the product that you're working with. And so I just bring that in as a cautionary note for folks, because uh, depending on what product you're working with, it could be just a little bit high, it could be just a little bit low. And it, it, whether that really makes a difference or not in the final formula, I, I'm not totally sure. But if they're looking at things uh, where I see it happen is when uh, accountants start trying to figure out where did the syrup go? <laughs> and, and all of a sudden they're saying, well, you're supposed to use this much and you might actually be using, you know, one or 2% more than you think because of the way BRICS readings are and so forth. So it's more of that cautionary note of, of just an awareness thing for the techies. Talk about the difference between cane sugar versus root sugar. Uh, well, I guess where it starts from is that whether you're producing a product that's going to be uh, have non-GMO ingredients in it or GMO, genetically modified. So beet sugar in the United States is all derived from uh, genetically modified beet. And so if you're looking to make that type of a product, you know, beet sugar is out of the question. Uh, Cane is non-GMO, obviously produced from a a tropical uh, grass and so forth. And so uh, it it has that healthy halo to it that, you know, non-GMO, it's cane, kind of working through along that way. Uh, the other, uh, there's some other differences that get into really around what happened to the products during refining and the degree of refining and so forth. Not so much a problem in today's refineries as it was maybe years ago, but you can get into issues around flock potential uh, that they get uh, as the result of some residual ash that's going on uh, in the products. And so, you know, that may or may not be a concern in the final beverage product. The other part that always gets a little bit interesting is uh, I've had customers call and ask about earthy notes that tend to show up. And the thing to bear in mind is that beets come from the ground. And so they do absorb some of uh, terra firma. And so you can get earthy notes coming from beet sugar as a potential. So it's just more of an awareness if all of a sudden you start making a product, you're using beet sugar and your sensory panels are out there doing some things and they're picking up this earthy note, they're not quite sure what it is. Uh, it, it, if it's from beets, it would be geosmin or geosmin. Uh, that could be a potential compound that's giving you that earthy note. Cane sugar tends to produce a very clean note to it, so it has advantages there. Right, Scott, where, um, where is uh, most of the beet production in the U.S.? Beet production in the U.S. is in the Red River, primarily up in the Red River Valley of uh, Minnesota, North Dakota. It's one of the okay. big growing regions. Yeah, uh, I believe there's other beets that are in the Colorado, Wyoming zone, and then in Southern California, as I recall, are the the primary ones there. Cane sugar, yeah, you know, cane in the U.S. is primarily down in the Texas, Louisiana, and Florida region, and then you also get quite you get cane being imported uh, from folks. Not all sugar is going to give us the same color, so talk more about what we can expect from the different options. 
so when when if I'm talking with a brewer about what is their goal and objective working with the different products and what are some of the hurdles and speed bumps that they're going to run into, color removal is going to be a really big one, especially if they're working with organic uh, types of sugars or some of these brown sugars uh, along that direction. For purposes of illustration, if one is working with a dextrose monohydrate or corn sugar and or sucrose that you say pick up at the store and you were to put that into a solution that you wanted to ferment, it would appear to the human eye as you look at it pretty clear and what we would call water white. Very little color, very little things that would have to be done in order to clean it up. This would compare to working with a brown sugar or an organic sugar uh, along those places where if you were to put those into solution, you would have a very amber yellow appearing liquid. Almost like apple juice or something, right? Absolutely. Apple juice is a very good descriptor for it. That would then have to be purified in some fashion. Uh, Typically, carbon is a very good, activated carbon is a very good removal of color. Uh, It has its own problems in, in trying to purify everything out afterwards. The other thing that one might deal with that's going to come in uh, is flock. And so think of a snow globe and those little particulate matters that are in there is in the wintertime that you get a nice little picture with. Some of the, and it's really dependent on the refining processes that were used in the sources. Not everything's going to be the same. I, there, there's no all-encompassing statement to say all of organic sugar is going to have flock in it because it all doesn't. Uh, But it is something to watch out for. Let's talk about dextrose monohydrate. That's the 50-pound bag of corn sugar that you'll probably encounter in most small breweries. Yeah. What's the difference between using dextrose monohydrate versus corn syrup? Is it just a handling preference, or is there going to be a big difference in how it behaves in a seltzer or a beer fermentation? So dextrose monohydrate is a is a pure form of dextrose. Uh, it's about ninety two and a half percent fermentable sugars in it. How that compares to other dextrose products that are out there in the marketplace uh, that would be under corn syrups and so forth, there's a, both a ninety five product and a ninety nine percent dextrose syrups. Those products, while it's not um, they have a little bit of water in them. That's the first thing to bear in mind, about right. 71% solid. So there, it's there. You know, it's a liquid, so you push a button and it pumps off. Uh, it does have a little bit less dextrose in it than compared to the dextrose monohydrate. But on a total fermentables basis, they're just about identical. Okay. So if, if you're looking to replace pounds of solids of corn sugar with pounds of solids, fermentable from a 95 or a 99 product, uh, essentially the same. The consideration one has to have for this, the dextrose syrups is that they do need to be kept at temperatures in excess of 125 degrees Fahrenheit, or the dextrose will crystallize. And that is not what you want to have happen. So <laughs> it, it becomes very tiresome to try to clean out lines and everything else. I, I just say, do not let dextrose crystallize in your system. 
and I, I assume it's okay it for it to, for that to happen in transit on the way to the brewery or whatever. You just have to when you're going to actually handle it, you need to make sure it's heated, right? Or is that not true? Um, well, it for small brewers, if it is shipped to them, and, and we've been working with them on that, it will be shipped in a tote, and the tote will crystallize. The totes do have heating systems on them, and we do have recommendations for how do you warm up a tote to get the dextrose to go back into solution. So easily handled, okay. just have to build in time to, to go through it. If one is receiving product by bulk truck, uh, that truck is going to be uh, loaded out very warm, uh, hot. It will arrive in a liquid state. Um, and again, the truck itself doesn't want to have the product crystallizing it because sure. trucks are not equipped to really heat product back up. So it, it, once it crystallizes, it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Coming up. The, the sweetness flattens and the, the off-flavor notes increase. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. This episode is also sponsored by More Beer. Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more. BSG is partnering with Leopold Brothers to bring a new line of small batch handmade malts to brewers and distillers. Leopold Brothers is a family-owned floor malting operation and distillery and 2020 James Beard Award finalist located in Denver, Colorado. Since brothers Scott and Todd Leopold first opened their doors in 1999, they have created everything from classic unfiltered lagers to a number of spirits, including a wide array of whiskey styles. Learn more about the upcoming malt line by going online to bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact BSG at 1-800-374-2739. There's one more sponsor I should mention, and that's Fermentis, a global supplier of active dry yeast. You can listen to Kevin and Marcelo talk about the shelf life and performance of active dry yeast on episode 93. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. Don't miss the Tank Cleaning Fundamentals webinar May 18th. District Milwaukee meets May 20th. The Great District Northwest covers all things canning for their spring meeting by Zoom on May 21st. District Ontario presents dry hopping best practices and optimization May 27th. June 15th, there's a Master Brewers webinar titled Brewing with a Social Mission, Bringing Peace Through Prosperity. 
and the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course starts August 15th. I really hope we get some in-person district meetings on the calendar soon. There's one big meeting that's on my calendar. I hope it's on yours. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers, united we brew. back to the show. Scout, why should a brewer monitor the pH of a syrup? So the regular corn sweeteners uh, that you're dealing with will probably have pHs that are coming in around uh, between 4 and 5, somewhere in that range. You know, pretty normal, pretty typical. Uh, Liquid sucrose, on the other hand, if if you're working with that, will uh, technically be coming in at somewhere around a pH of 7.0. And that is because if the pH drops below 7.0, you start running into an opportunity for inversion to begin, which is not necessarily what you want to have happen. The benefit of understanding about that pH is that if it is starting to drop, it's probably an indicator that the liquid sucrose is fermenting. And that is one of the the dilemmas that one has with liquid sucrose. Uh, Going through the handling process and so forth, it has a very, uh, uh, I want to say, high water activity. Um, And and the solids level and the pHs are very uh, conducive for growth of yeast and other microorganisms. And so if things are not handled properly, yeast and things will get in there. It will start to ferment. The pHs will drop. Uh, and that is one of the big handling concerns that one gets in with liquid sucrose. I haven't really heard it so much with totes. Um, they tend to be loaded out hot and used very quickly. Uh, where we do see issues come about is in liquid sucrose storage tanks, where uh, every now and then it's required to go ahead and CIP the tanks. And so a micro program is usually in place. But a, the easiest way to tell if you're starting to have problems is if your liquid sugar that should be at about a pH of 7 is starting to show up at about a pH of 4, and that will be a very early indicator that you've got uh, microgrowth in there, and it's spoiling. Okay. Um, Scott, in a seltzer, you'd want a highly fermentable syrup, but if we're talking about America's national beverage, American lager, like we talked about with Greg Casey on episodes 174 and 198, some brewers are going to be using very different types of corn syrups um, in, in those applications, right? Uh, yep. Talk about the difference between, say, a 53-DE corn syrup and a 95-DE syrup and so on. <laughs> uh, you talked to Greg. That's great. I, I've known Greg for years. Great, great guy. <laughs> and, and we've had many a conversation about some different things, especially on the historical side of beer. I I really appreciate his efforts going into the history of brewing. But 
to your point, John, uh, when one looks at the, uh, how do I want to present this? Corn syrups are mixtures of different carbohydrates. And those carbohydrates, some of them are fermentable and some of them are not. And so what you really want to take a look at and consider is when I make an all malt mash, what does that carbohydrate composition look like? There's going to be a little bit of dextrose. There's going to be a little bit of maltose. There'll be some maltotriose. And then there will be higher saccharides. For the most part, the higher saccharides are not fermentable. And so we consider the the dextrose, the maltose, and the maltotriose as being 100% fermentable sugars. That leads into a whole nother discussion about what is a fermentable sugar and what is not. How does that work? That said, what can happen with, with glucose syrups is basically you're manipulating that carbohydrate profile. So we can adjust the dextrose content. We can adjust the maltose content. We can adjust the maltotriose content a little bit. We can manage the total fermentables. Uh, most malt, uh, all malt beers are probably somewhere around 75 to 80% total fermentables, uh, sugars that are present. If, uh, in, and then you get into is the style, um, if you want a lighter style beer like a North American lager, typically that comprises of 30% adjuncts just because it ends up giving a cleaner taste, a fresher taste. And that's where the corn syrups come in. The, the thing about the, the corn syrups and the glucose syrups is that they are really just there to provide carbohydrates for the yeast, as well as residual carbohydrates for mouthfeel, body, and character. They're going to be very clean tasting. They carry very little nutritive content as far as trace minerals and nitrogen and so forth with them. So when you're using clean adjuncts like that, and it could be corn syrups, it could be corn starch, uh, corn grits, the, you have to understand that there's going to be no nitrogen value. And so you want to make sure that you have enough free amino nitrogen present in the beer to, so that the yeast can grow appropriately and properly. Makes sense. Um, okay, Scott, uh, as we're talking about these different syrups, um, are, are these products going to be um, all GMO or none, or, or none of them will be GMO? Or can you kind of get, get them in both forms? Or how does that work? So the any of the corn syrups that are being purchased from North America will be from corn that is GMO. That's right. just pretty pretty standard. Uh, there are vendors out there, and in Cargill's included, that we do have the capability of um, some specialty products for making non-GM corn uh, glucose syrups, but it, it's done on a very defined line. The another option is to bring in syrups from Europe. Uh, Cargill's done that for customers that are looking for the non-GMO claim, and, and they're wanting to go through there. Frankly, John, the, the probably the biggest user of that or, or the, the biggest product that comes in is dextrose monohydrate, where mm -hmm. people want to use non-GM. And so, uh, you know, we have sources for that in, in Europe along that way. Other options might include tapioca syrups uh, that come in from Indonesia. There are a couple of producers of those products here in North America. 
Uh, and there's also rice syrups, uh, brown rice syrups and so forth that are available that are produced. I think there's a couple of companies out in California um, and a couple of uh, uh, other of the, the malt, uh, specialty malt um, suppliers that have those types of products that are out there. So, so they are available, um, just not in huge quantities. Let's, uh, let's talk about what's known as back sweetening. Why might we want to add sugar back into a fermented product? And why is it more common to take that approach in seltzer production rather than just starting off with some, some amount of unfermentables up front? So the, uh, the back sweetening is a real interesting topic. And, and I'm glad that you brought it up. The, the thing that when I taste a lot of seltzers that are out there, there's, they've really made a very dry product and they've got some sort of a, a fruit flavor to it. Fruit flavors tend to be enhanced with a little bit of sweetness. And so by adding some sort of residual sweetness at the tail end, you're really helping to build and accentuate the flavor uh, of the product that you're working with. The other advantage is that by adding a little bit of sweetness, you also end up giving a little body and texture to the finished product. And so it doesn't have a thin, watery taste to it. So we see consumers that you know, prefer to have, uh, you know, they, they prefer something that has a little sweetness to it and a little bit of, of thickness or lubricity uh, is what we would look at. How does one achieve back sweetening? Uh, obviously, having a little bit of residual sucrose, we see that showing up on the label as, a, as an opportunity to add a, a very, very small amount of sweetness to it. Other means of getting sweetness in the finished products is use of stevia. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of interest along that direction. So uh, stevia, depending on the use level that you're working with, um, can really help bring out some of the, the, you know, provide a little bit of sweetness, a little bit of nuances uh, that help with the flavors of the, of the different fruit flavors that you're trying to work with. And then to, to help balance off or to, to help enhance the sweetness coming in from stevia and to give a little bit of mouthfeel, the opportunity is with erythritol. And so that's the, the other, uh, kind of the two of those working together can give you a really nice rounded uh, sweetness flavor. Not all stevia is the same. Why don't you give us the the lowdown on on the different types of of stevia that we can work with? So there are a lot of different stevia products that are out there. So perhaps if we look at it, how did the stevia product come into the marketplace and so forth? The the, the first products that, and I guess it's interesting to know Cargill was one of the first companies to really look at stevia. On a on a grand scale as a as a solution for um, you know enhancing or non nutritive sweeteners to try to help build sweetness into products and so forth, and we've been in it since I think it's about 2008 that we first started uh, working with products that are or with the stevia products. The first ones that came out, uh, John, were, were you know RA80, the very low purity type stevias and so forth. Most people that work with those really recall that they had um, bitter afternotes. There was the licorice note that was associated with it. And when people tried to put it into beverages that were essentially replicating carbonated soft drinks and so forth, very, very high use levels. 
they couldn't get there. Uh, Sucralose, Ace K, the high intensity sweeteners that were in the marketplace gave a very nice, uh, sweet flavor with no calories. Stevia just couldn't hit that at all. And so there was, uh, it just never took off. The, in the case of Cargill, it was interesting because we recognized that and the company literally spent two years looking at all of the different glycosides that are present in stevia and running through different combinations of them to really understand what was driving the sweet flavor and the, the sweet taste and, and the bitter off notes that are a part of that. And that led to the creation of the second generation of products that we would call our Viatech line. And that was really tailoring and trying to achieve good, sweet taste um, without bringing a lot of the bitter notes and the, and the sensory uh, attributes that were detrimental to the case. Not quite good enough yet to get to that carbonated soft drink, that diet soft drink level along that way. However, there was a couple of uh, glycosides that were identified, uh, what we refer to as REB-M as well as REB-D. But the problem with those is that they're in very low quantities in stevia leaf. And as a result, another way of trying to produce those had to be created. Cargill did a lot of work uh, along that direction, and we ended up developing a, a fermentation process uh, to uh, basically ferment the same way taking yeast. And, and instead of making alcohol, we're making Reb-M and Reb-D. The thing that I found really interesting, John, when I first tasted that is like, this tastes like sugar. I mean, I was totally flabbergasted by it because I'm not a, you know, a real uh, high intensity sweetener guy. And the stevia products that I had tasted before, they did have that licorice note to me and in the bitter aftertaste, but this stuff was really clean. And I was, I was floored by it. It, it was, it was so good. So now the, the opportunity to push the, um, the sensory attributes, the, the, sweetness equivalent is much better. So one can get up into levels around eight SEVs, nine or 10 SEVs. With the use of erythritol, even though erythritol is a little bit less sweet than sugar on an SEV basis, it does tend to enhance and build the sweetness up for stevia products. And so trying to achieve a 10 bricks SEV uh, sucrose equivalent value product is now very reachable working with erythritol as well as Reb-M, Reb-D, and that would be our Eversweet brand. When you look at hard seltzers, though, they're not really looking to go way up there into that high relative sweetness value. And so instead, what we're seeing is a lot of interest in the uh, one and two SEV equivalents uh, for products along that way. It's just enough to sense the sweetness. Um, it's enough with the erythritol to give good mouthfeel, and it also helps bolster the fruit flavors that you're working with. I'm sure most people have heard the term stevia before, but we didn't really even say what it is. You know, what what is this plant and where does it come from? Stevia is a, um, uh, it is I don't know the technical name for the plant. Um, we simply refer to it as a stevia plant. It's a plant. Um, I believe originally was grown down in South America. Uh, currently, most of the crops are grown in China, uh, but they're, they are seeing, starting to see global expansion for that. So it, it's, a, uh, it's basically, you know, if, if you think of tea, um, 
you know, it's that type of a, 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 I don't want to say a plant, but it's a plant with leaves. The leaves are harvested, they're dried, and then the glycosides are extracted using alcohol and water. It, it's a very straightforward process. And so the, you know, that's how we get to the, the different glycosides that are present in there. When I refer to REB-A, uh, that is uh, a term for ribodioside A because there are like 26 plus different glycosides that are present in the stevia leaf. They just numbered them A through Z, and then there's a bunch more that are extend beyond Z. So uh, it, it's just a sweet, naturally occurring chemical compound. Scott, why is stevia's sweetness nonlinear, and what are the implications? So when, when one is comparing different sweeteners, sugar is the gold standard. So sucrose, um, and, and it has a very one-for-one type of sweetness uh, enhancement. So 1% solution gives you one sugar equivalency. You go to 10, is 10 SCVs. You go to 14, is 14. So as the solids of a sugar solution increase, the relative sweetness of the product increases along with that concentration. Should also note that the, when one is defining what is the sweetness value, some things are real important. It's what's the concentration that you're dealing with? What's the pH of the system that you're dealing with? What's the temperature of the system that you're dealing with? Because all of those will affect how you perceive sweetness in the system. So now we take um, stevia and we start putting it into different solutions. And basically the taste panels are comparing those concentrations of solutions against the sugar standard and working their way up. And what they have found is that as the concentration of stevia increases, it starts to flatten as it gets higher and higher levels. So you almost have to go two and a half times more stevia in order to get just a real small increase in uh, sugar equivalency sweetness values. Okay. So it sounds like it makes makes good sense if you just need a little bit of sweetness, but if you need a lot, um, pretty bad diminishing returns and, and you know, you're going to pay for it. Well, you, you pay for it, but to your point of the diminishing returns is as you put more and more of the stevia in all of these off-flavor characteristics will also be enhanced and come out. And that's where the problem is. Right, because you get more becomes. of everything. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So the, the, the sweetness flattens and the, the off-flavor notes increase. Scott, where do you think the biggest opportunities are? I, I think what we're, when I work with brewers, John, it, and especially as we look at this, this hard seltzer category and, and what are the opportunities along there, um, I think there's a, a great opportunity in the space of that 1% to 2% relative sweetness. And that's just from an outsider looking in and understanding what's happening in beverages and where everything is at. It, it's been very surprising that you look at, um, you know, whether you're looking at chocolate milk, you're looking at carbonated soft drinks, you're looking at uh, teas, you're looking at um, sports beverages and so forth along that way. They're all kind of up in that 5 to 10, you know, 15% relative sweetness values that are looking at. This 0 to 5 is an area that has not had a lot of exploration by the hard seltzer folks. Um, there are people out there doing it. Obviously, there, there's been success in people that are working with different things. But for the most part, 
The tact has been make a very dry product, um, try to get it out there and uh, with a some sort of a fruit flavor in it, and you know push it forward and, and have consumers enjoy it. You know, a little bit of sweetness goes a long way, and I still come back to um, you know what is the goal and objective here is trying to find what we call the sweet spot where you're creating a product that has to taste great. And as a result of that, you're balancing off calories, you're balancing off flavor, and you're balancing off mouthfeel. And all of those, those three circles kind of come together and create in the center is what we would call taste. And that's really where the hard seltzer people, I think, should be working. And from my perspective, I'm here to try to help out, you know, hit that target, get to that bullseye of a great tasting product that consumers are going to enjoy and you're going to sell millions of barrels out. So that's the key. That was Scott Helstad here on the Master Brewers podcast. If you want to learn more, check out one of Scott's presentations from the links in the show notes or by typing his name into the search bar at mbaa.com. Don't forget, I want to watch you present something at the next Master Brewers Conference. Maybe even join me here on the show. Check the link in the show notes to submit your abstract before the deadline. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries, and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career, and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use promo code BEER2021 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.